Hello, welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast, uh, Season 4. Um, thanks very much, everyone, for listening, sharing, caring, and, and uh, sending in your um, questions. We really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. Josh Bond. And Trevor Lindy. And thank you very much to our sponsors, Brand Boulevard. Um, who, Glitch. Yep, who often uh, sponsors with our, with our guests. And speaking of another guest who we haven't seen in a couple of months, um, who's been busy trying to just save the world. It's not, it's not a big deal. It's, it's not a big deal. Just, you know, vaccines and, and United flu pandemic or I, I, I'm still lost, but Sarah, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. No, thanks for coming on. Um, the last couple of months. Okay. Um, you've been extremely busy. Um, all right. So let's start off. Uh, when we last chatted if i remember you were about to do swine trials because you had already finished or you're in the middle of ferret trials with your flu vaccine yeah so we have the we have the money from the gates grant um from the bill and Linda gates foundation that was basically like in the last episode of the netflix show where we won the grant we get to continue our research so at the beginning of the year uh we kicked off studies actually in both pigs and ferrets and that was um, supposed to be an adjuvanting study. So we were testing which combination of the Cenivax vaccine plus the adjuvant would provide the best immune response that would have long lasting seroprotective uh, neutralization titers. So I basically would prepare vaccines once every 28 days, ship them to our collaborators um, in the US and on the East Coast, and then they would run these um, they would vaccinate the animals and then they would take little blood draws every couple of weeks and test their blood. And it actually turned out really well, uh, so better than anyone was expecting actually. And it turned out so well that we decided to continue the study, uh, keep the animals and actually challenge them with, with an H3N2 virus. So both the pigs and the ferrets were then inoculated with live virus. And then we looked at clinical signs for infection uh, between animals that got our vaccine for flu versus animals that didn't get any vaccine. So those, so that study is actually just wrapping up now. It's like a follow-on study to our original adjuvanting study. Um, I'm still waiting to get like the final data packages from our collaborators that detail like all the clinical signs and pathologies and all of the, um, the results of the assays that show that if they were producing robust antibodies or not. So those should be coming in the next couple of weeks. So we're really excited. Um, and that's kind of where we are there. We have a big meeting coming up with the Gates Foundation to present this result. Um, and then when that study's over, we're going to um, vaccinate a fresh, like naive batch of animals, so animals that have not been vaccinated yet for both pigs and ferrets. We're gonna go through the series of about three, so a shot and two booths, so three total vaccinations. Um, and then we're going to inoculate them with the H1N1 2009 pandemic strain and see if they get sick. So again, it's the ultimate test of does the vaccine work? And the reason we're picking that 2009 strain is because we made our Centivax formulation for this trial to be a 2008 formulation. and 
between 2008 and 2009, H1N1 had this huge genetic rearrangement that rendered everybody's immune responses obsolete, which is why it was called the pandemic strain, because although the death rate was extremely low, it spread like wildfire across the world. Um, but it just it's just like a flu. So most we basically got lucky, but it could have been a disaster had the mortality rate been high. It would have been far, far worse than COVID. Really? So, My baby got it. Yeah. The H1N1 when she was like yeah. six months old. Oh, man, it's, it's actually quite dangerous for um, for young babies and, and kids. They kept on um, pricking her foot. That just drove me nuts. <laughs> oh, that would have driven oh, me man. freaking bonkers. But yeah, the, the H1N1 2009 swine flu was the like best case study of us dodging a bullet because of luck, because it spread so easily. No one had any immune response to it, but luckily it just was not very deadly. Kind of like so the actually, 2003 SARS? Uh, so that one yes it was very deadly but it didn't spread as easily and also the symptoms were so dramatic and they came on so quickly that it was very easy to isolate people and figure out who was sick and who wasn't and then because they were just stuck in a hospital bed dying it's pretty hard for them to infect other people but with something like an influenza or if you think of covid where the symptoms in some people can be mild or undetected that's the perfect way for a virus to spread but when the symptoms are so severe, like Ebola or the original SARS, you know when you have it and you're going to be in the hospital and you're not going to spread it. But the, the H1N1 from 2009 is, is the only, so all the H1N1s that are circulating in the world right now are all variants of that one. It basically spread over the entire world um, in less than a year, probably less than six months. And now every H1N1 we've had since then is a variant of it. It's just slight mutations from it. Um, but that's it actually makes a really good research tool because uh, the shift from basically 1918 to 2008, the H1N1s like looked a certain way. And then from 2008 to 2009, they flipped upside down and completely changed the way they're shaped. Like the, the physical proteins on the virus are shaped differently. So all of our immune responses from previous vaccinations or previous exposures are basically like null and void. So it's a great research tool because we can like test like what would a future pandemic look like if we create a world like 2008 where we only make a vaccine using information we would have had in the year 2008. We make our Sinovac vaccine based on that information and then we hit those animals with H1N1 2009 and see if it protects them. Because if it can pr protect them against a pandemic strain like that, then if we make a 2021 version of Sunnybacks and then say in 2025, there's that huge major change again and a pandemic comes and there's a high mortality rate, we're totally screwed, then that Sunnybacks vaccine would protect us against that pandemic strain before it ever hits. We don't so want to have like reactive vaccine, like COVID, we had a reactive vaccine. The pandemic came and now we're trying to play catch up and now it's always going to be this cat and mouse. But like, the, the real promise of vaccines is preventative medicine. We can actually prevent the next pandemic altogether. And that's what we'd want to do with this. So that's why we're doing that 2009 test in the animals. So I guess um, what's your, what's the, obviously that's another five week trial that you'll start. Like what is the, okay, let's go back because you said something in the very beginning, it did better than expected. 
What does that mean to the layman's person? Um, obviously, you have KPIs and you have benchmarks as a scientist that you need to hit and you need to cross. But to the layman person, what does better than expected mean? I know um, what efficacy. bar would you have? Yeah, like would it be efficacy? Like what would that be? Yeah, so when we say efficacy, um, because we're just drawing blood and then using that blood in assays in the lab, we're not actually, or at least in the beginning of the study, we weren't making the, we weren't purposely trying to make the animals sick with flu. We were just drawing blood and see if they made antibodies. So there's a couple of different like laboratory tests you can do to assess the strength and the breadth of those antibodies. Basically like how potent are they for killing influenza and how many different influenza strains do they match with? Like how many can we hit? Like if we make our Cenivax formulation, say with H1N1 from 2007, are they gonna make antibodies only against the H1N1 2007 strain? Or are they also going to make antibodies against uh, 2006 and 1996 and 1918 and 2009 and 2015? Cause we can test all of these different strains. So we wanna test like how strongly do they both bind with and kill the virus and also like what's the breadth across the past century of influenza that they can hit because the more the breadth that they can um hit that means the more likely they are to hit future strains as well and uh, you don't and have the results back yet right you had said from uh, when you would hit them with the we was do it actually and two or so we have the results from the adjuvanting portion so basically we tried out Cenivax with six different adjuvants, and then we have a seasonal control vaccine with one of the adjuvant combinations. And what I say, or what I mean when I said it's better than we expected is we really thought that like maybe one or two of the adjuvants would work well, and that Cenivax just wouldn't work with the rest of the um, adjuvants that we used. And we kind of, I mean, we did our research, but you kind of just don't know until you try. So we basically just picked what are the most common already FDA approved adjuvants that are already used in vaccines today on the market that have like decades of safety data. They have lots Got of it. animal data. So we basically just picked like the most popular ones to have the easiest route um, to the clinic. We don't want to create any surprises. We don't really want to try too many new things. Just go with like what works. And so there's a lot of kind of trial and error in that sort of vaccine science where like you just want to use whatever data is available, but you have to try it to make sure it works. So we did, like we picked um, uh, aluminum hydrogel. Uh, it's an aluminum salt that is in, it's the adjuvant in most vaccines and um, some other very common adjuvants that are in the vaccines that you and I all get. And I think what was most surprising is that pretty much all of the adjuvants worked really well. Nice. <laughs> and so it, it just goes to show that it's not like the adjuvant causing the response. It actually is our vaccine and the formulation that we chose, which appears to be working. And then we did have like two kind of moonshot adjuvants that would be amazing because they're like very modern and new age and um, they should be extremely safe and they're, um, 
they have a lot of promise, but they haven't been FDA approved yet just because they're so new. And even those work better than we thought. And what we really like about those is that we could potentially give it in one shot. So rather than a shot and two boosts, we could just do one and done, or maybe one shot and then a boost like eight weeks later. Um, so basically it looks really promising. There's two assays that we um, have so far. One is called a hemagglutination inhibition assay, which is basically a way to find out if the animals are making antibodies to the hemagglutinin protein on the virus, um, which they are. And then there's sort of these like levels that scientists have agreed upon where like, if you can dilute the sera, say one to 40, and you still see a response that that means it's strong enough. <laughs> it's like a little bit arbitrary, but it's just like, you gotta agree on something. So like there's these standards in the field that like, if you meet this threshold of antibodies, like of X strength, then your vaccine is like good enough to move on to the next stages of research, um, which it, it is. And across not just one or two strains, but multiple strains of H1N1, H3N2, both pre and post 2008, like all the way out to 2018, I think, or 2019 was the last virus that most recent virus that we tested and it's still looking good on those uh, titers. And then the other assay is called the viral micro-neutralization assay. And it's kind of a mouthful, but all it really means is do the animals produce antibodies that can actively kill live virus? And again, you dilute the serum more and more and more. So like one to five, one to 10, et cetera. And you want to have like, what is the most dilute you can get of the serum and still be able to kill live virus? Because that means the antibodies are more gotcha. potent if you can make it more dilute and they still kill the virus. And we're just off the charts. Like if people are expecting like a one to 40 dilution, like we're getting, you know, one to 600 sometimes, one to 1000 dilution. Wow across a whole panel of a century of influenzas, including future strains, which would be 2009 through 2019, which was tested. Now, are um, there, sorry, sorry, go yeah. ahead. So that's just, I mean, the, those are the initial results and we're like, wow, this is awesome. Let's challenge these animals with the live virus and spray <laughs> them in the nose. Cause we gotta yeah. like, we gotta find out more. <laughs> but you don't have those results back yet, right? No. So they did that study. And then they do things like they stick a Q-tip in their nose and they get some, you know, they they basically will take samples and they take the animal's temperature to see if they're getting sick and they measure its respiratory rate. And they also look at things that are a little more um, subjective, but they're also very like well-established in literature, like malaise, fatigue, depression, things like that, uh, where you can look at like a group of vaccinated animals versus a group of unvaccinated and you can compare the two. Um, and then everything's blinded, of course, to the people actually running the study and measuring these things. So they're like, well, I know this one got vaccinated and I'm pretty sure it's like less fatigued. Like we, we don't, that would be Controls, bad. eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they, they won't know. So um, now where are you going from here? Well, from here, so H3N2 is kind of a more tricky virus than H1N1, at least for the animal studies, because animals typically don't get as sick from H3N2. So measuring a vaccine, like basically doing a live challenge study with an H3N2, the difference between getting sick and not getting sick is very small. 
because they just don't get very sick. So we're not expecting like crazy results. We're like, oh my God, it works so well. We're basically expecting like to see that the Cenivax animals, both the pigs and the ferrets got like maybe uh, like no fever where the other ones maybe got a tiny bit of fever or just very like minimal change. But we're hoping to see something. And then we're going to pick the group that looks the best, but like the adjuvant group that looks the best and pick that one adjuvant to move forward into the next study, which will be on H1N1. And H1N1 should be a really dramatic difference in the challenge study because both pigs and ferrets can get very sick from H1N1. I mean, the swine flu that is an H1N1, swine flus and human flus are basically interchangeable. That's how they keep spreading year after year, it's like between pigs and humans. Um, and then ferrets also can get very sick with H1N1 in the same way that humans do. They get fever, they get cough, they get high respiratory rate, they can't sleep well, they get, well, we don't know if they get body aches, but they like, they seem like they're not happy. <laughs> so it's a great way to study uh, if a vaccine is working for H1N1 in both pigs and ferrets. So hopefully we'll see good results from the H3N2 study, and then we'll find out which adjuvant to move forward with as our one that looks the best for clinical development, and we'll go from there. So I guess in, in, in our lifetime, are we going to see, like, are you confident now? Like, are you, like, I know you exceeded <laughs> expectations as Josh is hacking up a lung. Uh, is it the vid, bud? Do you got the vid? You got the vid? Do you need a not booster? Not if that universal vaccine comes in beforehand. Yeah, right. Um, do you, uh, do you, do you, are you confident that this is going to be solved? Like, I, I guess I got no context to put it to, but you know, yeah, you know, how, how long until we could be using this vaccine? Like three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough question. But I guess your first question is like, are we going to see a pandemic? Um, yes, one will happen, but who knows when? Um, it's actually kind of funny because I was at a dinner party last week and the people I was with were like, let's watch episode one of the Netflix show and see how accurate it was. So I was like, oh, God, because <laughs> it came out, you know, like in January 2020, right before the pandemic hit the U.S., and there's this part where in the show, I'm like hosting a wine and cheese party. Yeah, and I'm like, I remember that. Okay, if a pandemic came, um, millions of people could die, maybe hundreds of millions. We don't know when, but we, we, we know that it will. And it's just so strange because like basically everything we talked about came true. And as scientists working in pandemic fields we don't like to be right like we would rather be the overcautious people who spent a bunch of government money to solve a problem that people never even knew existed and just fly under the radar and it's it's just kind of sad when like a series of events come together where we were like we have to say well we were right and it did happen so we really want to prevent that the thing is like the fact that a coronavirus pandemic happened has nothing to do with influenza. So it's not like we're saved from influenza because we had a coronavirus pandemic. Like an influenza pandemic could hit in two years or in five years. And we're not ready, obviously, um, because even like 
basic virus biology has become such a politicized issue that um, I've now lost faith in humanity to have a unified, effective response against a pandemic virus. So if anything, I'm even like more worried now that we've actually had a pandemic and we realize like how totally screwed we are as a society if one comes that actually is more deadly. Like we, we dodged a bullet with coronavirus because it's not that deadly and most people have very minor effects. But if it spreads as easily as it does, <laughs> yeah. So we know it'll happen, but I don't know if it'll happen next year or in a hundred years. So if it's in our lifetimes, our kids' lifetimes, um, but I wanna do everything that I can at this time to help prevent that. And for me, that's continuing to work on this. Um, but vaccines, if you don't have like major political and government backing, they're slow moving. Um, and it's really the same with any medicine. Like it has to have the ability to make a lot of money or no one wants to fund it. Like you got to look at your return on investment. I mean, it's right. all capitalism, right? Like yep. it, it's why most of the diseases that plague the third, the developing world don't have cures. They could be certainly solvable diseases if like, uh, you know, Western venture capital firms could pour the money into those diseases that they do for, um, Western diseases like oncology related and diabetes research, but uh, we don't cure the diseases that we could because the people that would take the treatments can't pay. So it's kind of the same with uh, vaccines is that vaccines are more of like a public health solution um, and they're preventative medicine. And like our society does not value preventative medicine in the same way that it does acute care. Cause it's just easier to see, okay, someone's sick, they got better. Therefore that worked. Therefore let's like do more of that. But it's just really, I think difficult to conceptualize and also from a financial standpoint to justify pouring a shit ton of money into something that may or may not, may or may not work. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Oh, you can say shit. Fuck. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> but it's yeah. just, I think a little bit harder for um, people and governments, institutions and, um, investment firms to pour in millions and billions of dollars into research that would be all for maintaining the status quo, like making sure we don't get sick if something were to randomly happen in the future. <laughs> it's so it, it's a complicated though, system. <laughs> optimistically, when do you figure uh, best case scenario um, that you'd have this universal oh, yeah. vaccine sorry i got off on a tangent just complaining no, about funding no, no. We, love tangents. <laughs> we, we love tangents uh, so that's a good question i would say we're hmm, so there's a lot that needs to happen before we start a phase one trial uh the covid vaccines are a little bit of an anomaly because of the fast tracking and emergency use approval yes. but uh, we have to do more animal studies, like to test formulation and all the buffer components and basically more animal studies before we can start a phase one human trial. But once we're in phase one, it gets a little bit more smooth sailing because um, it's pretty, um, like it's a pretty clear path from there. We just, the biggest issue would be funding, like who's going to pay the bill because it's billions, usually billions of dollars to get a drug approved. Vaccines can be yeah. less. 
Um, but the trials are long because in a typical vaccine trial, you are going to give it to many, many people, and then you're not going to spray them in the nose with the live virus because that's typically unethical. Um, you basically just wait around and see if they get sick from flu. So you have to wait a long time and you have to take a lot of stats. Um, I think there actually have been some trials where you can volunteer to get sprayed in the nose with flu. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll Curry. you've done it. No, I'll Don't do it. Care. Yeah, well, let's go volunteering yeah. for you. And and oh, I'm Canadian dollars, so like a billion American. That's like, oh yeah, you could do that for a fraction of a billion American. Like you could probably do it for twenty bucks Canadian uh, and, and a free trip to California. That's all I'll need. Oh, perfect. And a tour of Alcatraz, uh, say, please. That'd be that'd be that'd be cool. I'll take you on a tour if you want to swim around it. <laughs> oh jeez. Tour by water. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I would say like maybe five, like if all goes well and the funding stream continues to be steady for us, because um, eventually the Gates grant money will run out um, probably by the end of the year. And then we need to constantly hustle and get more money, ideally from non-dilutive sources like government grants um, and maybe like government institute or government organizations like BARDA or DARPA. Um, but uh, we'll do whatever it takes to like continue the research, whether that means taking on you know, investments, or if we really feel it's promising, we'll, we'll figure out a way to raise the money to continue this research. Um, but in a perfect world, we would have government backing for it, uh, because we really believe that governments should put the bill for this sort of research. Um, but anyways, uh, maybe I think five years from now is, would be like a best case scenario of when it could actually be approve like post phase three trials. There's usually uh, phase one, two, and three clinical trials. And then phase four is like post-market <clears throat> surveillance. So once people actually start getting it, it's like basically the last phase where then um, you continue to track like, you know, side effects and efficacy after it's been approved. Um, so those four phases, basically the first three, they definitely take a couple of years um, in a normal vaccine uh, trial space. So, uh, yeah, maybe 2026. That's not too bad. Optimistically, that's five years. That's not bad at all. You'll be 50 yeah. by there, There's other, uh, well, universal flu vaccine is just like sort of a buzzword. And so if you just research that, there's like a gazillion companies that come up making universal flu vaccines. Um, and there are some promising candidates, but um, like when you read the publications about their technology, it's like, well, they can cross-react against three flu strains. Therefore, they're calling them universal. Or they work on H1N1s, but not H3N2s or not H5N1s. So the, there's really no like unified definition of universal flu vaccine. And therefore, like that's why every other week I'm getting a Google alert saying like new universal flu vaccine enters phase two trials. I'm like, oh my God, somebody scooped us on like, getting there, but uh, it hasn't happened yet. There's definitely some interesting stuff that's farther along than we are, but time will tell. And having more competition, I think overall is better because it pushes everybody to elevate their research to a higher level um, and also to have a bit of like speed pressure to like not sit on great ideas. Like you actually wanna get them moving and get them out there. Um, and also, there's more there's more space than basically there's space for more than one vaccine um like even the covid vaccines you know there's 
a variety of different uh, brands out there and some have access to different areas of the world and different connections, different supply chain strategies. So um, we're, we're in a hurry, but we're going to take the time that it needs to take to do it right. Now, I, I've got a couple more questions. One's on the mutation of, of the different variants and one being Delta. Yeah. Um, should I go into it? Like we're at 28 minutes. Should we go into another? I would start um, a new one, Brand. Yeah, all right, cool. Maybe, yeah. maybe can we give a get, maybe just a quick update on this one though, about your, your, your um, COVID vaccine. You were working on a COVID vaccine as well, were you not? Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so in December, so December 31st, 2020, Distributed Bio, which is the company I worked for, got acquired by Charles River Labs. And yeah. Charles River Labs is a contract research company that basically does drug, uh, <laughs> drug discovery and research and preclinical development for uh, both large and small molecule therapeutics. Um, so Charles River acquired the services part of DeepBio, the part where we discover and engineer antibody-based drugs. Um, but Distributed Bio did other things, which included uh, development of therapeutics like a COVID monoclonal antibody. So it actually wasn't a vaccine, but rather a monoclonal antibody sure. treatment. Yep. Um, so <clears throat> in the acquisition, all of the non-services parts of Distributed Bio got spun off in a separate company called Centivax. So Centivax is not owned by Charles River. It's its own company. And all of the universal flu vaccine work that I'm doing is under Centivax, not Charles River. And the way I'm able to do that, because Charles River is my day job. So I work, you know, nine to five at Charles River. Um, I'm the director of strategic partnerships, so I manage our alliances with our um, clients that we work with for certain types of like high value projects. But I'm a contractor on the side for Cenivax, specifically for the flu vaccine program. But Cenivax is doing other stuff, including the COVID monoclonal antibody. And I'm actually not involved in that right now because since the spin out, I'm only a contractor for the flu vaccine program. So I'm sorry, that was a long-winded answer to say, no, I don't no, know. No, no, that's good. <laughs> and I, I think you did allude to that last time we spoke, but I just wanted to make sure that I had it correct and our listeners had it correct. And, yeah, and but I can, so I should refer you, so Jacob Glanville, he's the CEO of Centivax. Um, he was also the CEO of DBio before the acquisition. So he, obviously is well attuned to the status of their COVID um, monoclonal antibody. I'm pretty sure it's starting clinical trials now-ish if they haven't already started. Um, okay. But yeah, it, it seems to be moving along. Um, I just haven't been, I don't know any inside information because I'm not, a, I, that's not my part of the company. So I only know like the press releases and the things that are publicly available. Uh, but uh, I, I could definitely have like refer you to Jake. He would be awesome on this podcast too, and he could talk about uh, what it's like to like build a company from an acquisition, like from scratch, and launch a monoclonal antibody therapeutic without the backing of big pharma. Um, that would definitely be an interesting story. But, uh, yes. but yeah, so that's it's moving along. That's as far as I know. Clinical Good. trials. Good. If you can loop, loop him in with Curry. 
if you yeah. can loop them in with Curry, that could be uh, interesting as well, right? Just to yeah, and then. I think monoclonal antibodies are still very important to have as just another tool in our toolbox to fight COVID um, because vaccines, as we know, they work pretty well, but they don't work all the time. They don't work in everybody and they're not necessarily as effective against the variants. Um, monoclonal antibodies are each going to be different. Um, I don't, I haven't seen the data myself, but last, before the Delta variant came out, there's like the South Africa variant and the, um, like the England variant, but I do know that the the Senevax COVID monoclonal antibody yeah. was working against all of the variants. And that's something that at, at that time it was working against all the variants. I don't know the new data on Delta and Mu, but um, if if it is true that it's working against those as well, that would be really awesome because that's such a great tool for um, hospitals to use. Uh, and also, like the issue with some of the other companies, like Eli Lilly and Regeneron, is that those antibodies have rough side effects, and they I think were only approved for use in um, severe cases. So it, you basically like need to be at the end, and it's like a last resort. Like, well, let's just try this. Um, but the Senevax one was engineered to be extremely safe um, and non-immunogenic, meaning it could be given to people who have mild to moderate COVID disease. So okay. to keep them out of the hospital or keep them off the ventilator, it could be used as like an earlier intervention. So that's so that's it, the idea of that one. Sorry, I just, I just want to get this straight. The monoclonal antibodies that are being used are still in a sense, in an experimental phase and people saying no to the vaccine uh, and now getting sick and needing the monoclonal antibodies, there's still potential of adverse effects long term. Again, we don't know, so not trying to say for sure, but picking one versus the other and a lot of people are saying no to the vaccine, probably not the best idea, basically what I'm getting uh at. Yeah, and when you look at just sheer numbers of people on this planet who have received at least one dose of a vaccine versus people who have received one dose of a COVID monoclonal antibody, <laughs> there is a whole lot more people and more data on the vaccine, and it is extremely safe. <laughs> and they don't, the vaccine does not have the side effects like these. These monoclonal antibodies can have serious side effects. I mean, monoclonal antibodies for any disease, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's basically a, foreign looking object that you're putting into your body and you kind of don't know how it's going to react. And the problem is you can't know that in monkeys or in mice because they aren't human. So if you're going to make like an anti-drug response to this monoclonal antibody, you don't know until you put it in a human. But for Ooh. a vaccine, you can find that out way earlier. You can sense. find that out in a mouse because you're not yeah. trying to inject like a human protein. It's a viral protein and you should make it should be immunogenic. That's the whole point of the vaccine. But you don't really know what kind of mysterious side effects a monoclonal antibody will have until it goes in a phase one clinical trial in a person. And <laughs> like the Senevax monoclonal antibody is purposely like humanized. So it's been... It, I think, originally came from an animal, um, but we, by we, I mean, like, Sunnyvax, before we got acquired, we used our, like, D-Bio technology 
to engineer it to make it the most human looking possible. Um, there are other antibody drugs out there that don't look as human. And there are problems that come up with that because your body's like, oh, this is something in me that definitely isn't me. I'm going to go attack it. And then bad things can happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when you just look at like the probability, I would much rather get a vaccine that's been tested in millions of people at this point, um, rather than getting an experimental monoclonal antibody drug while I'm at the end of my life on a ventilator. <laughs> so the cocktail that Joe Rogan got may not be as safe as what he's trying to say. I, yeah, I don't know. Also the cock, so these companies are using like, okay, well, a cocktail approach is better because we have more chances. But the problem is the reason they're using a cocktail is because each single component is too weak to actually do anything. So they're hoping that there's like a synergistic effect where like they'll have a better result when they're combined together because each individual antibody is not very potent and not very effective. Uh, but I know that the Cenivax antibody is a lot more potent, at least based on the in vitro data that I saw from the hamster studies, where we didn't actually need a cocktail drug because the one is good enough on its own. And that's just better for manufacturing. It's better for basically everything downstream. You only have oh, to streamline it. Yeah, yeah. Like, ideally, you'd want one drug rather than multiple and mix them together. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm, well, we'll we'll end it here. I, I've got a couple more questions just to throw on some more conversation. I'm sure for the next episode. Um, so, do you mind staying on and, and doing another one? What's yeah, your schedule like? All right. Well, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. Please share, care, tag, like, Bondo. Help us. Help you stay informed. Do. Did Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.